If the creek's been rising or the weather's coming up Or you found a little nugget or your horse has won the cup Put the billy on, ring macker Australia's waiting for you Always a bit of weather about I've been looking for my little Pacific blue eyes They're these little tiny fish Think I can find them in my pond? Seem to have disappeared They can't have disappeared Anyway, give us a ring this morning wherever you are Whatever you're up to 1300 700 222 Love to talk to you Good morning, welcome Want a hand mate? Ring Macca. Morning Macca. Cameron Thorlane. Yeah, just sitting in the tractor going up and down the paddock and burning some wheat down in Gibson, down the Essence in Western Australia. About 10,000 acres in total. We've done the canola and we've got some fader beans in and they're all starting to come up already. We're about halfway through the wheat. First time I've ever done it, to be honest. I've been travelling around the country in a caravan with my family since uh, 2019. We met this lovely family down here last year and we ended up coming back for the seeding season. And what made you take to the road? It's always been something I've wanted to do. I managed to convince my partner that she wanted to do it too. And two life-changing moments, uh, our daughter got sick and uh, I had some back surgery and that was sort of enough to say, well, let's just do it. Life's short. It's been magic. Lots of memories that people that will never forget. And just spending time with the kids while they're young, really appreciating that. We love Western Australia. Uh, I don't know if you'll be able to get us out of here. That was Cameron on the Wallaby. He loves Western Australia so much, he, they don't think he'll be able to get him out of here. Uh, 1300 700 222. I don't know, probably like you, I've collected, well, I haven't collected them, boomerangs over the last, you know, 20 years. People have usually given me a boomerang. I haven't collected them. They just say, here's, have a boomerang. And mostly they're, they're just those returning ones, but all sorts of ones. I've got one as big as my leg. Some bloke, you know what blokes do? They get into the shed and they do all. All sorts of things. Well, this is, you couldn't throw it. It's huge and it's very, very heavy. I just wanted to read you a little bit about boomerangs from the Australian Encyclopedia. It says here, the boomerang, a curved throwing weapon. The distinctive feature of a boomerang is that it is shaped to fly, exploiting the aerodynamic lift of its arms as it propels through the air. It can, therefore, be thrown considerably greater distances than a simple throwing stick. To achieve this, the cross-section of boomerangs must be lenticular, sometimes bioconvex, but more commonly planoconvex. In the latter case, it's thrown with the curved surface uppermost to ensure lift. Boomerangs were fairly widespread throughout the world. Examples are known from Western Asia, northeast to Africa, southwest the United States and from prehistoric Europe. But it's in Australia that their great diversity and elaboration are found. The earliest known evidence for boomerangs also comes from Australia, where specimens have been found preserved in swamp deposits at Wiry Swamp in South Australia, dated by radiocarbon to about 10,000 years old. Australian hunting boomerangs are generally fairly symmetrical in shape, though some have the handle somewhat longer than the other arm. There are variants of the angular form in which one arm is shorter than the handle. These are primarily fighting boomerangs, which do not require to be thrown over such great distances. They can be thrown hard onto the ground to rebound unpredictably onto their intended victim. You'd hate to be hit by a boomerang, I'm telling you. The returning boomerang is not a weapon, for if it does strike an object in flight path, it's interrupted, and like any other boomerang, it will simply drop to the ground. To enhance the effect of the boomerang spinning through the air, burning coals were sometimes attached to its tips with resin, creating a sort of a firework display. Boomerangs were a common and widely distributed item of Aboriginal material culture, and they are not uncommonly mentioned in myth and depicted in art. It says here boomerangs 
are made from hard woods and are generally cut from the suitable shaped part of the tree, such as the joint of a branch or the buttress of the base of a tree trunk. The final shaping is carefully controlled and the surfaces are finished either by grinding to a very smooth surface or textured with small regular ads marks. Decoration is not uncommon. When this is cut, it is usually restricted to the upper surface, either as long parallel grooves added along its entire length or finally incised geometric patterns. Boomerangs may be coated in red ochre or, especially for ritual use, decorated with painted bands in red, white and yellow. And there's a book quoted here, D.S. Davidson, Australian Throwing Sticks, Clubs and Boomerangs. I don't know where you get that. It'd be pretty old. And just from a book called The Swagman's Notebook, which I found the other day, someone had sent to me, this is from 1943, but on the subject of boomerangs by an A.S. Kenyon, says, Speaking broadly, the comeback boomerang is a plaything, and except for throwing into a mob of galahs or other birds, is seldom used for hunting. The hunting boomerang, less curved or angular, is longer and rarely has the tips turned up. It certainly has a deceptive flight, curves in the air, and can strike an animal behind a bush or other shelter. The fighter boomerang, which must not be confused with the boomerang-shaped club, is still longer, as much as three feet, is often elaborately decorated and holds at times a ceremonial significance. The smaller return forms may be thrown to traverse distances exceeding 100 metres, sometimes describing a path of several loops, and even these may strike a very severe blow, cutting a duck in half or a man's limb to the bone. Boomerangs are left-handed or right-handed. That is, they describe a course clockwise in the latter case. That's from a little piece in the Swagman's Notebook by an A.S. Kenyon. But as I said, lots of blokes get in their shed and they decide to make a boomerang and they get the right wood or all sorts of woods and away they go, decorate them. As I said, I've got one as big as my leg. G'day, this is Macca. Oh, good morning, Macca. Morning. Um, it's Fiona Lakey. I'm ringing from um, Serena, and I'm on my way home from Beef Week. Near Mackay in Queensland, yep. Yes. How yes, was how yes. Beef Week? Well, it's fantastic because all the tra- traders turned up, and I was worried that people wouldn't come, but more came than usual. So uh, I missed the remote area residents I often see from the Territory and WA, because most of them would have been worried about getting stuck in quarantine. Uh-huh. Um, but there were thousands of people there. So it's a big catch-up, of course. That's the main reason I go. Yeah, well, I think that's what yeah people like about a gathering, whether it's a, it's a local show or whatever it is, a field day or whatever. I think uh, whatever it is, you know, in around when, you, when there's a gathering of people, it's really, really nice. And, you know, COVID's put a, the kibosh on that for the last year or so, hasn't it? So... Um, when you can do it, uh, let's oh, do it. Yeah, exactly. Look, I've had enough of online personally. Um, I don't want any more Zoom. And people now, you know, they want a one-on-one call. Can we schedule a Zoom meeting for next Tuesday? I'm like, can we just use the phone? You know, how about we just ring now? It's driving me nuts. I mean, I work for myself. I, you know, I have to brush my hair and carry on if I've got to do a Zoom thing. I just want the phone, you yeah, know. It's, it's like, um, yeah, those what are those phone calls? call where people look at you i can't stand those i just uh, hang up i don't i'm not into that at all you know when you no uh, no we don't have to see one another no, to speak and no. it was interesting there was a research recently that said we could tell emotions better 
when we couldn't see the person we were speaking to. So I thought that was very interesting. So I'm using that now. That's my little um, <laughs> one research project. That's, that's my little excuse now. No, we're just doing the phone. We don't need to see one another. No FaceTime. Yeah. No FaceTime, Fiona. Ladies no. and gentlemen, Fiona um, is a photographer mostly um, and uh, takes photos all over Australia, mostly in, in the outback and bush and places like that. But uh, So you'd have uh, lots of... Um, Lots of subject matter at uh, at Beef Week where there's so many people around and lots of cattle too. Yes, it's one of those things you want to be in two places at once because the beauty of a stand is that if you sit there yourself, you will see everybody who comes past. And it's Murphy's Law. As soon as you go, someone will come to see you and you've just ducked off somewhere <laughs> and you miss them. And so I actually I, don't, I actually don't get to see much there other than the people who, who come past. But... Um, so you sort of have to prioritise, and really, for me, seeing people is the—that's the highlight for me because I just hear such interesting stories, and I see people that I haven't seen for a long time. This year, I saw someone I haven't seen for 24 years. They used to live in the Kimberleys, and I, I saw them. But the record is 30 years. I saw an ag college lecturer once that I hadn't seen for 30 years. <laughs> mm. There you go. So that's, that's, yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. yeah. Fiona rang last week, ladies and gentlemen, after the program had finished, and she wanted to mention drones because I was talking about, um, I was talking about, I'd met some people oh, five years ago, I think, in Tamworth, and they were telling me that I think their son or friend of theirs had gone to China and was um, uh, crop dusting in, in China, spraying. And uh, Fiona said, oh, well, no, they do all that by... Um, Drones now. You're you you're full bottle on drones, Fiona. Ah, uh, yes. I don't do the <laughs> the drone spraying, but I I do do um, workshops telling people the pros and cons, and, and it's trial and terror. I tell people because you, often people buy a drone and think, oh, it's got a return to home button, la la la. And you know, as we all know, tech is great until it doesn't work, and lots of people get scared because things go wrong. Mm. Um, so I try and pass on basically what I had to learn by um, trial and error. mistakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> trial, oh, trial and error, I call it, because if, you, if you're if you flying a, a drone and the screen goes blank or the app freezes and things like this, um, it scares the devil out of you when it first happens. So um, forewarned is, is forearmed. Yeah. So, I, I yeah, I try and pass on the info so that it doesn't happen, and if it does happen, what to do. Uh, do, you ever, do you ever lose drones? Do you ever... No, no, no. But I have had, um, I've whippersnipped the odd gum tree. Um, <laughs> reversing when you're taking a video is a big no-no. Um, but it's also why you only you only fly drones as far as you can see them because you've got to look up from the screen. You can't just fly from the screen. Wedgetails, of course, take love taking drones out. Really? Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, lots of people have lost drones to wedgetails. Um, so if there's a wedgetail around, that's my... That's my hot tip for the morning. Any drone pilots listening, uh, if there's wedge tails around, just land and I, go and fly somewhere else. I love mm. I love wedge tails. I love them. Uh, and and of course, people take them out. You know, over the years, haven't they? Just idiot people have shot shot them, shot them, shot them for for no good reason. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm on the side of the wedge tails when it comes to drones. But look, Fiona, you use them to take photos. Of course, some beautiful stuff. Yes, I do. Um, you know, I take a lot of farming. Um, I take a lot of farming images, and it's great to show 
I take abstract images, but also production images to show, um, you know, good work. The, the best thing they're used for in agriculture really is, is finding problems early. And then you deal with them, not necessarily using drones another way, but you find the problem early and it saves a lot of time, money, headaches, whatever. Yeah, well, you can fly um, around your place, I suppose, and see if the pump's working and all those sort of things, I suppose, and see if the gates are open and people got out and animals are in the wrong paddock, all that sort of stuff, I suppose, and then go out and fix it. Yeah, and weeds, things like that, you know, mm. like cane crops, for example, vines grow in the middle, you can't see them from the edge. You fly a drone over and you see weeds early and you go and deal with them before they've, they've smothered half your crop um, mm. in the centre of the crop. So tall crops, for example, um, particularly useful in inaccessible areas, that kind of thing. Is rubber vine yeah. still a problem in Queensland? Oh, it's a nightmare. Well, it's spread right across the north now. Uh, you know, everyone goes on about cane toads, but in reality, weeds are far, far worse. Yeah. Um, but they're not sexy, <laughs> to use that. A term I don't like, but it really applies. Um, people don't find weeds exciting, but really they're a scourge, and, and they've only just begun. Um, woody weeds. Same woody weeds. Feral, yeah. Same with feral animals. Yes, yeah, like so, pigs, yeah, you know, right. which we really need to deal with in Cape York because there's such a disease risk. If a disease gets into the pigs in Cape York, it could run around there for a long time and become really well established before it, uh, before anyone realises. Mm. Fiona, have you got a home or are you travelling all the time, aren't you? <laughs> oh, no, I do, yes. No, well, actually, I'm really lucky now. I do travel a lot, um, but Townsville... Townsville's home, but I'm off to Hobart at the end of the week to run a uh, a drone workshop, and then I Hebel Hebel and Nindigali. I go to really remote areas. I absolutely love it to run these workshops. Yeah, well, and if you get a crowd of people there, I should come with you and talk to people. I like talking to people, and it's nice to get out to places. But oh, I don't know. We don't do that as much anymore. And and I used to go to places like an ABC shop. Well, we don't have ABC shops or centres now, so you know, usually I could say, "Look, I'll be in Hebel at the ABC shop." you know, just theoretically. And um, you could go there and people would turn up, but we don't have that facility anymore, So, which is a great shame. Oh, it's really, it's really, really sad. I mean, I looked, I, I went into a folder the other day where I had all the bookshops that I used to sell books at and probably 99% of them no longer exist. Uh, Roma, Emerald, all these little towns had mm. a really, really good little bookshops. Yeah. And uh, they're just not there anymore. Um, really, really sad. Mm. Fiona, nice to talk to you. Uh, you're in Serena this morning, is that right, at the moment? That, that's right, yes, yes. I'm about to jump in the car and go and take some photos of um, Kane on the way to Yungala. I'm, I'm trying to slow down and, and not race around quite so much. It's not working very well. So I'm making myself go to Yungala on the way home to Townsville. G'day, this is Macca. Oh, good day, Macca. This is Neil McKenzie here. Hi, in the Blue Mountains, riding my bike around Australia and currently out in Aramanga in southwest Queensland. Oh, wow. How long have you been doing this, Neil? Um, about five weeks. Mm-hmm. Five-week mark. Came up the west on the side of the Great Divide. This is a what? motorbike or not a push bike? No. Oh, no, I should have said, yeah, no, push bike. A push, push bike. bike, yeah? Yeah. So I put my panniers on, all my... Well, not really all my life belongings, but all my gear, my tents, my bags, everything comes with me. So. How come? How come, Neil? Well, it just seems a good thing to do. I've done a lot of bike riding over the years, and I've done a couple of bigger trips, one down to 
South Australia about 18 months ago. And I guess you just get to that stage of life. I'm late 50s. So, you know what would be really nice? To ride around Australia. And it's a different way to see the country. There's no doubt about it. You can't go really slowly. You smell everything. You hear everything. You see everything. It's just beautiful. It's magnificent. Hard work, though, Maka. Hard work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's, it's not necessarily an easy way to do it. I say this, but it's not everybody's thing. There's no doubt about that. But you do see the country differently. And that's the absolutely beautiful thing for me. So, yeah, lovely. So, so how long have you, uh, how far have you travelled so far? About two and a half thousand Ks. So, so you, what um, are you, are you heading towards Inaminka or Birdsville or something or you going the other way? Yeah. No, well, I, well, I, yeah, I sort of have been heading west out towards the Birdsville direction, but too much dirt road and corrugations from the bike on that one. So I'm just now actually morning I'll be jumping on the bike and staying ahead slightly east so I'll go back to Quilpie and then up towards Longreach. All right yep Windora through Windora or going that way or? Yeah go through Windora yeah absolutely so I'll stay Windora I'll be there probably two three nights as in I'll be there in two or three nights time I'll stay there a night or two and just have a look around and then pack up again. (laughs) So is that um is it uh is winter pushed in there around there? Is it still cool or warm of a day and cool in the morning or what? Look, it's a bit coolish here at the moment. It's oh, it's not cool at present. I couldn't tell you what the temperature is. It's probably mid to high teens, mid teens, I would think, here at Aramanga this morning. But it, every day has been 27, 28 degrees. It's actually been perfect cycling weather, blue skies pretty much every day. So, how long are you um, going to take to go around Australia, Neil? Well, I've taken 12 months off work, and so how that works, how that works, I'm not sure. So I'm kind of saying in my head, 12 months, but I don't have a really specific plan. It's probably two, three days ahead. I have a view of where I'll go and where I'll look to be. I'll probably get caught out with the wet seasoning up the top end, I would think, because that's you know just not the time you, you ride bikes and pitch tents in the middle of them on the soon. So... I'll either bunker down or hunker down up top for a few months. Or you, I'll you, you're talking about Christmas time. That's when you'll get up there. Yeah, be around that kind of time. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, not the ideal cycling and, and camping weather. So as I say, I'd either hunker down up there for a few months and have a good look around. I'd probably even just well, store a bike for a little while and fly home. And, well, you keep yeah. in touch with us, Neil. Collect some stories, talk to people, tell us some interesting yeah. news as you get around. The things in life you take for granted, eh? I've landed and departed from Sydney Airport in many mornings over the years, as I suspect of millions of Australians. To me, it's one of the great experiences. As you taxi in, say, to the terminal, busy weekday morning, the runway passes over the freeway below. You look down and there's thousands of commuters in their cars crawling along and they're looking up at you. Or if you're on the freeway, you look up and you're dwarfed by this huge jumbo jet almost on top of you as it passes the freeway. The name of the freeway that snakes around Sydney Airport is, of course, General Holmes Drive. Never caused me a moment's thought, really, until a book... William Holmes, The Soldier's General, written by Geoffrey Travers, arrived on my desk. And now all will be revealed, I think so. Uh, Geoffrey Travers, welcome to the program. I think we're all dying to know, well I certainly am, dying to know who was William Holmes, General William Holmes, General Holmes Drive. 
Well, General William Holmes was a, a Sydney boy who was born in Victoria Barracks, the son of a non-commissioned officer, uh, grew up and he joined the public service at 16. By 24, he was the chief clerk of the water board. By 32, he was the chief executive of the water board. And he built a lot of the water supply that allowed Sydney to grow from 150,000 people to about 800,000 people. Like what? Well, the Upper Nepean scheme, the, the, where they dammed the Nepean and the Cordo and the Cataract and the Avon rivers. Then they dug a canal, a tunnel and a canal that takes it to Prospect Reservoir. And then from Prospect Reservoir, it went down another canal and into the city. They built that between 1878 and 1888. He actually had joined the public service on building it in 1878. Was he an engineer? No, he was just a really bright lad. He was a clerk, so he became the chief clerk. And the water board started when the Nepean scheme was finished. They started the water board. He applied for the job as chief clerk. And after six or eight years in that position, he became the chief executive of it, or it's called the secretary. That was his day job, which he held to the day he died. But his love of his enjoyment or his hobby was being in the militia and being in the army. And when he was about 39, the Boer War broke out. He volunteered to go. He took nine months' leave of absence from the water board and he went over as a a sort of a company commander, basically, in a charge of about 100 men. And he had nine months fighting the Boers in the start of the Boer War. And he really turned out to be a very, very good soldier. In the militia, he became a commander of one of the regiments there and he brought back with him his experience from the Boer War, which was that accurate rifle fire was absolutely the most important thing for a soldier and he made his regiment the best shooting regiment in the militia. When war broke out in 1914 they formed the first four brigades of the AIF but they also got requested by the imperial government to send a force up to capture all the German possessions in New Guinea and all the islands to the north of Australia right up across the equator. General Holmes got asked to lead that and it was 1500 men and the, and the Australian Navy, they went up there, and within a month they'd occupied all of that territory. That territory is massive. It's bigger than the, the size of the whole of Australia, and he only had 1,500 men. But he was clever enough to take on the Germans at Rabaul to get the governor there to surrender all of those possessions, and that saved a lot of trouble. And the great thing about that was, from Australia's perspective, was if Australia hadn't occupied those German possessions, the Japanese, who were allies at that stage, would have come down and they would have occupied them, which would have given them a huge stepping stone to invade Australia 25 years later. So it was a really vital strategic role. But he was disappointed that he hadn't been given one of the brigades in the, in the AOF. They were going to Europe. He didn't really want to go up into malaria and disease in, a, in a, an unglamorous fighting. There was a bit of fighting. I mean, the first Australians were killed in New Guinea, but you know, like we had six deaths in this little one battle called Bitter Packer. But anyway, he came back and they were then starting the 5th Brigade and the 6th and the 7th. He was given the 5th Brigade and that went over to join the other divisions which were already in Egypt. And they didn't come forward onto Gallipoli until the middle of August, just after the August offensives where you know things like the Neck, where all those poor men were shot. The 5th Brigade was the first one that went there and immediately, I think, Holmes had a, an impact because his big thing was to go around the perimeters of the of the position to, uh, everywhere and to go and talk to the men. What do you need? What should you do if you're attacked? Have you got enough ammunition? Have you got enough food? Have you not got enough water? A lot of the other generals who'd never been in battle never did that. Some of them never went to the front line. Some of them never went up, say, to Quinn's Post in the whole time they were there, but he did. As a result, that made an impact and at the very end of the Gallipoli, when they decided to evacuate, one of the generals got sick 
We don't know whether he was sick or whether he just didn't want to be around for the evacuation where they were expecting to lose 40% of the force. So Holmes was given the temporary command of the 2nd Division and he was, so he was promoted above the other brigadiers. So he commanded uh, the 2nd Division, which was really what, all that was left at the very end. The, the 5th, 6th and 7th Brigades were the last off on that last couple of nights. And it was a great success because they lost no one where they were expecting to be really beaten up. Then they went back to Egypt and they decided they were going to make three new divisions apart from the first and second. And that started a lot of jockeying for position. He should have really been given one of those divisions, but he wasn't. So he went back to the 5th Brigade. He went with that to France. So they got to France around about April, May, and they went to a quiet area, Armentieres. It wasn't that quiet, but they got acclimatised, and then they went to the Somme. And from July to November, they were involved in really heavy fighting, suffered a lot of heavy casualties, but he really demonstrated his leadership ability during all that severe fighting. Good men are always hard to find, aren't they? And it's always tough to get to the top as well because there are competing interests, and I suppose in the Army it's no exception. There's people wanting to get the best of you, if you know what I mean, or get the plum positions. How did he keep rising, if you like, and why haven't we heard about him? Well, we haven't heard about him because he got killed in July 1917. How? He was escorting the Premier of New South Wales around the front lines because the Premier of New South Wales wanted to go and visit some troops who'd been recruited. And the Premier of New South Wales was? William Holman. And so William Holman wanted to go. He was touring around and he was sent by Birdwood to Holmes and he wants to go and, and, and visit people who are in the 13th Brigade, which is from New South Wales. So Holmes said, oh, well, I've got to show this bloke around. So he's taking all sorts of precautions to take him to the front. You know, they, were, they stopped because they could see a German plane being strafed or an artillery gun. So they, oh, the Premier wanted to watch that, so they had to stop. And then a bomb dropped nearby and they were showered with potatoes. And so Holmes said, look, this is getting a bit too close for comfort. We'll move over here. He's trying to take him up to a lookout that overlooked where the Battle of Messines was. They were seven kilometres behind the front line, so he was really taking care. But there were four of them walking along. Suddenly, without any notice, a bomb landed right between them. Knocked them all over, ripped all their clothes off. And the only one who actually got hit was Holmes. And a piece of shell went right through him. And they bundled him in a car, but he died in the uh, Premier's arms within about 10 minutes. I mean, if people forget the range of those guns, the range of the Australian and German guns, the smallest ones was about 11 kilometres. So he could be seven kilometres behind the lines and you could still get killed. So he was very, very unlucky. I get all sorts of interesting emails and bits and pieces about things that are happening. You'll be interested to meet Johnny Donalis, who's on the line. Um, Johnny Donalis, good morning. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing? Good. You're in Taroom. We are. We're at the Historical Museum having a cuppa with the museum director and uh, some other folks. Now, Johnny, tell. Well, it's an interesting story, and it starts off with something called the Groovestone. Tell us the story about your dad, the Groovestone, and yeah, it's a it's a wonderful story. Oh, thanks, mate. Um, look, my dad was a, a bush veterinarian, and he used to spend a lot of time out this way around Wondoan, Taroom, and um, he used to work on on quarantine properties where they fattened cattle and blood, you know, preg tested them and got them ready for for live export and. Um, it, over the years, Dad developed the habit of scrounging around in barns and paddocks and finding interesting things, and he put them in the back of his ute and bring them back to Brisbane. And um, you know, our house in Brizzy was a bit like a pioneer museum, much to the consternation of my mum. But um, on one trip out here, 
I think it was in the late 70s, um, Dad came across a large Aboriginal uh, groove stone, which is basically a large sandstone block that, you know, uh, the traditional owners out here use for sharpening their stone tools and axes and spearheads. And this stone really caught Dad's eye because it had a, a really distinctive star pattern on the top. So Dad took the farmer into putting a chain around this um, stone, and they pulled it out of the out of its out of its place and put it in a truck, and it came back to Brisbane, where it sat in Dad's backyard for about forty-five years. Right, and then and what's happened since? Well, Dad, um, Dad had a few Aboriginal pieces in his collection, and t- about ten years ago, he. Um, he sent something back to country, Wamba Wamba country down on the Murray River, and um, he was a bit nervous about it. Dad had some pretty hard attitudes towards our, you know, our, our Aboriginal people, and um, and he was pretty nervous about it. But Mum and Dad were just treated treated with kindness and and gratitude, and it was a real turnaround for both of them, particularly my dad. And not long after that um, repatriation ten years ago, Dad was really red hot on taking this stone back to country, and he. he was diagnosed with cancer a couple of years ago and he, he kind of got on my case and said, let's get this stone back to, you know, out to Tarum and, and before I, before I pass, you know, he got diagnosed with cancer and, but the cancer moved faster than we could. And, um, and, and dad passed away. And, um, but also I did a bit of research into the history out here and it was pretty dark. It was a dark time in the 1850s. Uh, for the Yemen people, and and I I didn't think they'd be very receptive, the locals, to getting the stone back, and I didn't think there'd be too many Yemen people left here out here, um, because I was pretty much written off. But a year after Dad died, I got on, into contact with Glennis Shearer, who's sitting beside me, out at the uh, Tarun Museum, and she, you know I I got a very different picture. All my assumptions were pretty much shattered. The local people are, had a lot of them have been been really working hard helping the Yemen get their native title claim through which they did in 2016 and and they're coming back back to country in numbers and at the museum here they're building a keeping place uh for a lot of their artifacts and their story and um glenn has passed on some pictures of the the, the star of Tarum, which we called it that's what it's uh, called the star I, isn't it a great name the star of Tarum. this is uh, the groove stone right that's right well mm. when i was a little kid i used to imagine it was like a stone star that fell from the sky it's <laughs> it's a it's a really magic piece Anyway, the um, the Yemen got very excited about it and said, "Look, we'd love to get that stone back, put it into our museum as pride of place." And um, and um, I've, so plans were made to put it into a Ute. And around Christmas time, uh, just passed. I thought, you know, if we put this in a Ute, and drive it out, the whole journey will be over in six hours. You know, how can we make this stone tell a story? Because I know for a fact that there's probably hundreds and maybe thousands of families all over Australia that have got important pieces of cultural heritage in their barns or in their in their sheds or even under in their cupboards. And a lot of people don't know what to do with this stuff. They're really nervous about it. So we're trying to raise awareness about the importance of returning cultural heritage because it's a great way to connect with communities and it's a really healing thing for everybody involved. I mean, it's just we haven't even started started this journey yet and it's been magic. So the idea is on the on the third of July, I, I pitched the idea to the Yemen elders and and Glennis and said, why don't we build a handcart and push this stone back to country? So we're he- that's great, Con. So I we're heading it. off. And- <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, everyone loves it. I was hoping someone might try and talk me out of it. What? Well, um, how how big is it? how how much does it weigh? This um the groove stone, the Star of Tarum. 
well, you know, smart a smart fellow would have weighed it before he started making promises. Um, <laughs> we we a, a bunch of us stood around it and said, oh, we you know we we made guesstimates from seventy kilos to about one hundred and twenty five. But we got it out of the ground from mum and dad's place a couple of weeks ago, and it looks like it's going to be well over 150. So, uh, <laughs> dear oh dear. Well, but that's a lovely. So, when you're doing that in December, did you say no? No, no, in Ju- no July? 3rd of July, we're heading off from Brisbane. Yeah. Um, so, so, we'll be leaving Brisbane and we um, cross, that, cross the forest to Lake Manchester, and then we're picking the rail trail up uh, and we're heading, heading north up through um, Fernvale Esque. Gulawa, Blackbutt, Kingaroy, Wandai. Is so that... we'll be off the roads. Then we're popping into Cherbourg for a couple of days, and then we head across back country from Allies Creek, Cockatoo to Taroom. Where Johnny so Muller, five... where Johnny Muller, the fast bowler, come from? Cherbourg. That's exactly right. Yep. Yes, exactly right. Yep. So um, it's going to take us 21 days to work, walk that 500k. And um, look, I've got some amazing mates around me and neighbours, and we've got volunteers coming in. So. We're actually inviting people to come and walk with us um, on that rail trail. Like if someone wants to come and walk with us for and a day. You're just saying you want them to come because they can push. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny D- Donalis, I'm talking to Johnny Donalis. Uh, what do you do, Johnny Donalis? Uh, I'm a writer um, uh, by trade, but I, I guess I'm in the removals business at the moment. <laughs> there's been a lot of organising to do. I think this walk is going to be easier than doing, you know, getting all the logistics and We've we've had to uh, get some insurances to cover our volunteers and all sorts of things you don't think about when you come up with these ideas. Uh, and museums are great places too, aren't they? I mean, it'll highlight the tr- people will go to the True Museum, I'm sure, to see that. But um, museums are great places for things like this, aren't they? Uh, not just the museums, um, Macca, but the people that run them. Glennis is like, she's like a hub in the community out here. She's connected the Yemen people, uh, you know, to myself and each other, and and um, oh, she's been pivotal. This journey wouldn't have happened without this conversation with Glennis. And when you talk to her, she just knows everything about the whole district. So you, part of the reason we're walking too is we we want to raise awareness about the importance of country museums and also raise some money for the for the museum here and the Yemen keeping place. And because they're running on the smell of an oily rag. Exactly. You know, there's a an old schoolhouse out the back here that's all covered in lead paint, and you know. I think the quotes to get that compliant is about 40 grand. So, you know, they've always got some, you know, they're always trying to find volunteers to help out or find some funds. So we hope we, we hope we can help the Taroom Museum out and the Yemen people as well with some donations along the way. Well, you say good day to Glennis. I'll come out and talk to her sooner or later. Um, I'd love to come out and see the star of Taroom, the Groove Stone. Johnny Denali's it's a wonderful story um, in lots of ways. It may have stayed buried somewhere, uh, even though your father probably took it illegally. In some ways, it's it probably um, the star of Tulum, Tulum has come to light because of him in some uh, uh, strange way. So um, I think, um, and everybody knows about it, which I think is good. As you say, it's a it's a healing thing for everybody, which is which is wonderful. Great to talk to you, Johnny Denalis. Thanks, Ian. Look, come out on the twenty fourth when we roll into yeah. town because. Oh, you yeah. are coming in on buses and we'll be opening this uh, keeping place and the mayor's opening it up. It's going to be a big, big day into room. We'd love to see you out here, mate. All right, mate. Good on you. I, I can't push. I've got a doctor's certificate. Um, <laughs> see you, mate. Good on you. Thank you. Bye. <whistles> Kathy's in Junee. Morning, Kath. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, good. 
It's beautiful, sunny in June. I'm travelling around Australia, Mackie, Macca, picking fruit and veggies and nuts. All right. And you're in June. What are you picking in June? Or are you just a weather station? Uh, just, <laughs> no, I'm travelling through. I finished up um, in Albury picking chess, chestnuts. I'm travelling up through Wollongong, dropping in to see the family. And then um, going up to Queensland, I've realised I... I can't do cold anymore, so I'll follow. I'll follow the sun and come back in summer. It's beautiful. That's a good in song. I should, I should play that song. Um, follow the sun. Yeah, follow the sun. Um, you'll be picking oranges and mandarins if you get up there soon, won't you? That isn't that. It's about to start, isn't it? Mon- and strawberries. Mon- I, I hear that strawberries are really um are really wanting pickers up round. Um, oh. Well, did sort you hear that email I read before? They're wanting they're wanting workers everywhere. It's a exactly. great great shortage of workers. And as the my correspondent said, and yet I'm going back to Adelaide, and he said I hear there's a hundred thousand people on job seeker here in in South Australia, oh. but there's jobs awaiting everywhere. And if we keep the borders closed, sooner or later people are going to have to do the jobs because it's costing a lot of money. I don't know. Oh, I don't... That that's what resonated with me, Macca. I am. Um, I'm a recruitment consultant, worked in Sydney in a big office block for about 30 years, um, got made redundant last year, was sitting there and I heard, you know, the farmers and all the fruit and veggies that were just um, rotting away. And I'm sort of thinking, well, you know, I need to get out there. So I started with blueberries. I went to grapes. I've done potatoes and salad and chestnuts and just anywhere that needs me. I, I wish I could be everywhere, but... <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> I'm with a group called the Nomads, and um, I've been trying to get them involved to um, just travel around and work for a few weeks as they see Australia. Well, good on you. You keep in touch, Cathy, and give us a ring wherever you are, okay? I will. Thanks, Del. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> G'day, this is Macca. Oh, Macca, it's Marilyn Curtis. Uh, from Gawler, CWA. I don't know if you remember me, but I met you at Malala, the Pinery Fires Blaze Aid, and you interviewed me there. A couple, um, couple of years ago, yep. Yes, that's yep. correct. Yep. And um, I just want to let you know we're celebrating something fantastic in Gawler this week. We're celebrating 80 years of our branch in Gawler, and it's taking from the war years right through to 2020, and we've got a display at the Gawler Civic Centre this coming week for six days to show just what the women did during those years. It was just fantastic matter. And, and they keep doing, when you have things like the, the, the Vinery Fires, uh, they keep doing it, uh, Marilyn. And oh, yes. All over Australia. And we've had some, you know, fires everywhere and floods and stuff like that and just generally droughts and all the wonderful work that organisations, community organisations um, like the CWA it should be the Community Women's Association, really, or, or C- oh, well, CCWA, Community Country Community <laughs> Women's Association. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Community, Marilyn. Yes, and and you know that uh, doing doing the research for this with our members, we just felt the women with us all the way, and they sent us messages, and really funny things happened to us during this journey of the display. And they called us to find things for them to display, which was which was really spooky in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was good because that means they want this story told. And, you know, they adopted the HMS Gawler in the war years and what they did for the troops. 
And then years on, years on, looking for their own hall and fundraising for the community, but fundraising for themselves to have a place as well to do their work. Um, and just sharing, caring and sharing right throughout the community just was there all the time. Um, but times have changed so much, hey, from in 80 years, um, from decimal currency to, I, I saw in the minutes where they had the first refrigerator and how excited they got, you know, and the vitamizer and uh, uh, just funny things, you know, that we don't realise how far we've come, hey? Yeah, well, sometimes we've come a long way in some ways and other ways we've gone backwards, I think, Marilyn. But uh, look, congratulations. That's, that's in Gawler this week, is it? You can go and have a yes, look at that. Yes, it's in, in, the, in the institute itself where we, first, we were first formed in the institute in 1940, so we've gone back to that place. And the town of Gawler have been wonderful. We have a launch in the morning and then we open the display for six days to the public and um, it's something to see. Good on you, Marilyn. And something Great. to be proud of. I'll say, and, I'll say. Good on you and lovely and to talk to you. And thank you, Macca, for your support in everything you do with Country Women. So you, a lot of people don't know you do a lot in the background. Good on it's you. Great. Thanks, Marilyn. Okay. See you. Thanks, Macca. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.